In the 16th century, there were two men who took up their pens to criticize the sinful behavior of the medieval papacy. The first was Erasmus of Rotterdam. He wrote a satire called The Praise of Folly. In his work, he attacked the papal propensity for gluttony and immortality. immorality. Rather. For one, he writes, who loves intensely lives not in himself, but in the object of his love. And the further he can move out of himself into his love, the happier he is. The second man was a man named Martin Luther. What differed, however, between these two men was their approach. Luther said of Erasmus that Erasmus attacked the Pope in his belly, but I have attacked him in his doctrine. Erasmus went after what the Pope desired, whereas Luther went after what the Pope thought, or particularly what the church thought. Because for what Luther argued was that, where or so as the doctrine, so goes the church. Luther wanted to clean up the doctrine of the church to help them understand the authority of Scripture. And so throughout church history, there have arisen men who have sought to attack the doctrines of Scripture. From Arius to Nestorius in the first centuries to Schleiermacher and Fosdick in the last. The doctrines of Scripture have been twisted and distorted by a plethora of teachers. Since the very beginning, in the very dawn of the church, there has been false teachers who have sought to distort the Scriptures. R.C. Sproul once said that if you want a quick course in the history of heresy, you need not go to the graduate school to learn. If you spend much time in front of your television watching preachers, you are likely to see and hear virtually every heresy that the church has condemned from the first century to today. And there is some truth in that. If you want to see heresy, you just turn on the TV preacher. And so today, we want us to consider this morning, how do we guard ourselves against theological error? If Christians, historically, over 2,000 years, have been susceptible to false doctrine, we ought to understand that we ourselves are susceptible. We are not inoculated from false teaching. We are not immune from theological error. Just because we believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God doesn't mean that we might not be susceptible to some theological error. Now, just to gain a bit of context of what we're thinking about this morning, Paul here in this letter to the church in Colossae has shifted in our passage this morning from the theological foundation that he laid in chapters 1, beginning in verse 3, all the way to what we considered last week, to now discussing the implications of this high Christology that he's been teaching. Uh, much of what we've read and thought about today in God's Word or what we've sang about is this high view of Jesus. And Paul asked this question, what does it mean to live in Christ? We thought about last week that as Christians we are to walk in Jesus or to stick close to Jesus. And before he really fleshes out the specifics, he begins here in this passage and what we'll consider this week and next week, destroying the theological arguments of these false teachers. He lays down for us in this passage a general warning and then in the following verses provides the basis for 
rejecting their teaching. He shows us that Jesus Christ is supreme and sufficient. That Jesus Christ is the supreme one. He is the the high and lifted up one. He is the ruler of the cosmos. And therefore, he is sufficient to deal with man's problems. That the the cross of Christ is a sufficient means that God has used to, to fight sin, to destroy sin. And so, Paul here is will demonstrate for us that there are no other means to fight sin in the the heart of man than the cross. That the cross of Christ is a sufficient means by which you and I can attack indwelling sin in us and so grow in holiness. So I want us to think this morning about living a cross-centered life. How as Christians, God has invited us to live a cross-centered life. So I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. If you've not done so already, it's located on page 984 in those pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can read and understand, let me just invite you to take that as a, as a gift from our church to you. Take that home, read it regularly, seek to know and grow and understand this God we've worshipped this morning. This morning we're in Colossians chapter 2. We're considering verses 8 through 15. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, this is the main idea that we want to consider this morning that Paul puts forward, that Christians must guard against theological error. We must guard against theological error by sticking close to Jesus. We want to see here in our passage this morning that the gospel is the sufficient means to not only save us from our sins, but also to sanctify us. That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to save man of their sins, but also to make us holy, to sanctify us. That we, not, we don't need to give ourselves to other means to sanctify, but the gospel will sanctify. And so this morning, I want us to see that we need to remain committed to these truths revealed in the gospel. What Paul offers us is nothing short of the gospel. And so, as we face the temptation to give in to other means to battle sin, we must remain vigilant of the dangers ahead, that you and I will be tempted. And next week, we'll think a little bit more about 
the various means that we often give ourselves to, man-made remedies to to the heart of man, to sin. But this week, we want to think about the sufficiency of Christ to sanctify, that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient to deal with our sin problem. Now you think, well, where are you getting this idea? I just want to point you forward just a little bit before we get get too far of ourselves. Notice here verse 23. Verse 23. Again, we're not considering this first, but but it gives a bit of context of what we're dealing with. Paul lists a number of man-made remedies to deal with sin, to deal with our sin problem. And he concludes in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So this morning, what we're thinking about is how do we stop the indulgences of the flesh? How do we deal with our sin? Well, we need to understand we must deal with our sin by taking it to the cross of Christ. There Jesus deals with our sin. So this morning, first, we want to see that we ought to guard our hearts against doubting the sufficiency of Christ. When we are tempted to other doctrine, ultimately, fundamentally, at the, at the bottom of the foundation of false teaching is a doubting of the sufficiency of Christ. When we doubt, our, uh, when we doubt whether or not we're truly saved, we are doubting the sufficiency of Christ. When, when we doubt whether or not we can overcome a particular sin that we've been entangled in, we are doubting the sufficiency of Christ. And so Paul begins here in verses 8 through 10 by calling our attention, by warning us, That false teaching denies the sufficiency of Christ. Notice what he says there. See to it that no one takes you captive. He warns them, doesn't he? He warns them. He says, be ready to learn about something that is hazardous. Uh, There's something to look out for. This, of course, is a... Something that Jesus would often use in his teaching. For example, in Matthew 24, Jesus warned his disciples... See to it that no one leads you astray. Or as Paul would do in Philippians 3.2, he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul here is saying, young church in Colossae, look out, watch out for. There are false teachers that are on the prowl. And notice here in this passage the nature of their false teaching. Fundamentally, it was to undermine the sufficiency of Christ. Look what he writes. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive. No one captures you by what? By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, right there at the end of the verse, we see that fundamentally what their teaching sought to do was to undermine. That's the word according to there throughout, used throughout, is to mean standard, the standard, the basis of their doctrine. 
the basis of their, their worldview, the, the lenses by which they saw the world was not according to Christ, but according to these other things, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These were man-made teachings, man-made philosophies that sought to undermine the work of Christ. Fundamentally, while we don't quite know the specifics of their false teaching, we understand that fundamental was a gospel plus message. It was the gospel plus something else. And in this particular case, it was the gospel plus some human effort, some human teaching. It was the secret life, the way to an inner and deeper meaning of life that they sought to teach. And any time we are confronted with a gospel plus something else, we understand that it is a false teaching. They had placed man's thoughts, his ideas, and traditions on an equal playing field as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was what it meant to be a gospel plus. And Paul warns these Christians of the dangers of worldly philosophies, those which are derived from man's thoughts rather than from Christ, these that which could capture their minds. Notice the word he uses, captive. It captivated them. It captured them. They were enslaved by it. They were captured in their minds, and they were led away from the truth. And so these philosophies were pervasive, They weren't something to flirt with. They were something that were drawing these early Christians away from the finished work of Christ and thus leading them to doubt and discouragement. I wonder, do you face doubt this morning? This morning we want to be alert to the reality that false teaching is around us and it is seeking to draw us away from Jesus. Any message that seeks to draw us away from the finished work of Christ, any message that seeks to add to the work of Christ, any thought in our own minds that thinks that we have to do something to somehow merit God's love is a false teaching. Because in the cross of Christ, Jesus has accomplished everything that we need for life and godliness. And so, we need to understand that ultimately it denies the sufficiency of Christ. But, in verses 9 and 10, Paul reminds us it is the faithful teaching that demonstrates the sufficiency of Christ. The remedy to any false teaching is the true teaching of the gospel. Notice what he writes there in verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the rule, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul reminded the church of the truth they already knew. This was not new revelation to them. This wasn't something that they were just now hearing. Paul here points them back to a truth that they already had heard from their pastor, Epaphras. They knew this about Jesus, that he was fully God and fully man. And so Paul here is affirming the eternal deity of Christ and the preeminence of Jesus' humanity in their salvation. That in Christ and in Christ alone is found the fullness of God. In other words, he says, if you've encountered this one true and living God in Jesus, why are you turning to other idols? Why are you turning to something else? 
He's saying if you truly know Jesus, if you've truly been captivated by Jesus, you don't need anything else. Everything you need is Jesus. Jesus is not some, a part of some angelic hierarchy, for example, but is the very person of God, worthy of worship and adoration. As one author said, God has manifested in himself to us fully and perfectly in Christ. If you want to see God, look no further than to Jesus. There we experience all the fullness. But notice here what he says in verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Paul here emphasizes the indwelling of Christ's spirit within the believer. Notice he goes on to say that we have been filled in him. The idea here is not merely indwelling, but rather completion. As the New American Standard so helpfully translates, in him you have been made complete. In other words, Paul points to the truth that if you are united to Jesus, you have everything you need. You are lacking in nothing. There is, there, there's not one need that you do not have if you are united to the eternal God. Notice what he says in verse 10, who is the, who is the head of all rule and authority. That means that whoever is in the White House or whoever is in the Parliament or whoever is in authority, whoever is the king, Jesus is the greater authority. And so the Christian need not worry. The Christian need not think that they are helpless in this world. Jesus truly is the sovereign one. In other words, if you have everything you need in Christ, Why are you looking to something else? Why is it that you are looking for some magic bullet to fix your spiritual appetite? Christ is fully God, and you and I have been united to Him. You see, Christians are not immune to idolatry. Idolatry is when you find your identity in anything other than Jesus. If you are a Christian and your identity is not fixed in Jesus, but in some other attribute, whether it be some behavior that you do, some position that you hold, some title that you have, and not in the finished work of Christ, then we are prone to idolatry. This is Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus, that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you've been filled with all the fullness of God. You have the fullness of God in you, Paul says. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, says that this way, those who do not rest satisfied with Christ alone do injury to God in two ways. For besides distracting from the glory of God by desiring something above perfection, they are also ungrateful inasmuch as they seek elsewhere what they already have in Christ. You see, when we go to other means outside of the person of Christ, we 
fall into idolatry and we proclaim the insufficiency of Christ. We say that Christ's cross is insufficient to save us fully and to sanctify us completely. But the theological idea that Paul is going to forward here in these verses is that Christians have forever been united to Jesus. That he alone has authority over all. That no one greater, nor does anyone have any equal authority. Therefore, we ought to submit to him alone. Friend, by meditating on this passage, one author would say it this way. We must observe that we are hemmed in above and below with railings that our faith may not be devoid, rather, even in the slightest extent from Christ. In other words... Brother, sister, hear this truth. You have everything you need in Jesus. We ought not to give ourselves to other means, but rather see the sufficiency of Christ to sanctify. And so Paul continues here in verses 11 through 15, giving us five reasons why we must trust the sufficiency of Christ. Very quickly, we're going to look at just these five reasons why you and I ought to trust the sufficiency of Christ. In other words, this morning, if you're doubting whether or not you can be free from the sin you're entangled in, these five reasons ought to round out those doubts, ought to encourage your heart, ought to propel you forward to fight sin. You have everything you need, friend, to fight sin. Number one, he says, he circumcised our hearts. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The verbal idea that Paul paints here of putting off is literally the stripping off of clothing. It describes the removal of sin nature. But the Christian does not remain naked, but notice here, is clothed in a new nature. You know, so often we think about the gospel merely in terms of forgiveness of sin. And we have been forgiven. But we've also received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That he has circumcised our heart. He has cut our hearts. He has given us new hearts, new desires, and new longings. A new nature. And in this passage, it is best to understand that it is referring to the death of the old man through faith that is then displayed through baptism. That's why he goes on in verse 12 saying that we've been buried with him in baptism in which we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. We as Christians celebrate baptism not only to declare our faith in Jesus, Uh, going public, if it were, about our faith in Christ, but visibly, through immersion, we display what God has done inwardly in us. That we've been buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. What has happened to our hearts is what is visibly displayed when we go under the water and we are raised again. It is a declaration of our death to sin, and life through Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean that Christians don't sin? Does this mean that we have nothing more to do and that we are completely perfect or or that we can be perfect? Not at all. The activity of the believer is described in chapter 3 and summarized in this way, that we are to put off the old man 
and put on the new man. That through the, through the union with Christ, Christians have the power to remove sin and a new nature is received. That we have died to sin and received new life. That the removal of the sin nature was not done, notice what he says, notice what he says here, made without hands. In other words, it wasn't something that we did. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It was not done by any human effort. It wasn't done by any confession of sin. Not by, done by any obedience to rules. It was accomplished only through the circumcision of Christ. By us dying to sin through the death of Christ and raising again to new life by faith. This has happened. Therefore, we have all we need to die to sin and live in Him. This is the first reason. He circumcised our hearts. But He goes on to give us yet another reason, doesn't He? Here in verses 12 and 13. That He conquered death. Notice what He says. Who raised Him, there at the end of verse 12, who raised Him from the dead... And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here Paul paints a picture of Christ Jesus conquering death. Being a Christian means that we have died to the old life and lived in this new life through Jesus Christ. Faith being the first sign of regeneration, the believer does not merit these things because of his faith, but demonstrates the effectual nature of the Spirit by believing in the work of Christ. He describes here a passive activity by which God has done some work in our life. And by faith we believe that Jesus has done this on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute. Throughout this, we see that it is God who is at will to work both to his, for His will and our good. See, through our participation with Christ's death and resurrection, resurrection, the believer has a new life and a new Lord they now follow. Paul again is, is driving at this idea that the sufficiency of Christ to sanctify, that if Jesus is able to conquer death, then he is able to conquer your sin. A dead man got out of a grave. Your sin is not too big for God. He can overcome it. F.F. F. Bruce says it this way, For baptism not only proclaims that the old order is past and done with, it also proclaims that the new order has been inaugurated. The convert did not remain in the baptismal waters. He emerged from it to walk in newness of life. We don't just bury ourselves in the water. We come out of the water to walk a new life through the resurrection of Christ. He conquered death. The grave is empty. And because the grave is empty, God can help you by the power of the Spirit to overcome sin. Thirdly here, in verses 13 and 14, as he goes on, he says that Jesus canceled our debt. Notice what he says here. That we've received forgiveness of sins, having forgiven us of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
does he mean that he canceled our debt? Well, to cancel a certificate of debt is to wipe it out, to erase it, to remove it, to blot it out. This is what David cried in his confession in Psalm 51. He said, oh God, my God, will you blot out my transgressions? How many of us would just desire that God would just blot out yesterday or this morning? Our fleeting words, our passing comments, our sin. Notice here in this passage he uses the language of a certificate, a record of debt. He canceled the record of debt. The, the idea here is like a modern day promissory note. When we, when we sign a promissory note, we promise that we will pay back the debt. The problem with sin is, is the debt just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it got so big that we, we would never have enough years to pay it back. The debt was so surmountable, so large, that it would be impossible to satisfy. But through the death of Christ, He satisfied it. He paid it in full. The point we see here, friend, is that we can never, ever do enough good works in order to satisfy the record of debt. We can't kill enough sin in our life that would ever be enough, that, that, that only Christ and His death would be sufficient to save us of our sins and to redeem us of all unrighteousness. Notice here, he goes on to say that these obligations contained in these debts were against us, opposed to us. It stood against us. It, it, it was a mocking voice against us. It said, you'll never be able to measure up. You'll never be able to stand up. You'll never be able to repay. Imagine if your credit card company or your mortgage company sent you a letter every month saying to you, you'll never be able to pay us back. We'll for, you'll forever own that. And sometimes it kind of feels that way, doesn't it? That you'll never be out of debt. It's a demoralizing place, a discouraging place. And that's what the debt did. Our sin debt proclaimed we will never be able to pay it back. Ultimately, our sin separated us from God. But by His grace we see not because of anything. Notice here, in these verses, there is no agency of man. These are all passive ideas. Everything is acted, being acted upon us. And that God is the main agent. He made us alive together. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see the verbal idea He has. He nailed it to the cross. Who did He nail to the cross? But His own Son. Paul here describes the picture of substitutionary atonement. Jesus became our sin debt. Where we deserve to die, He died in our place. As an atoning sacrifice, He satisfied the Father's wrath that our sin rightly deserved. 
And it was a once-for-all sacrifice, a completed sacrifice, not one that needs to be repeated, but one that was once-for-all satisfying the sin debt. And Christians who were once dead in their sins are therefore alive in Christ. In God's amazing love, He made us alive through union with Christ. Do not think this morning, brother or sister, that God is still angry with you because of your sin in your past. Whether it be sin from this morning or sin from a lifetime ago, know that if you are in Christ, your sin died when Jesus died. Through our union with Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We've been united with God in His resurrection. And therefore, we live because Jesus lives. And the truth that we need to recognize when we are battling sin, when we are confronting sin in our hearts, is that forgiveness of sin does not come through commitment or obedience, but only through the cross of Christ. To say that you can be good enough to earn God's love is to say that what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient. That you could do it better. That you could be a better Savior. To pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. To get your life together. I'm going to do it this time, Lord. I promise, God, I'll get my life together. To say that is to say that Jesus isn't enough. What we need this morning is not more of you and I doing things. We need more of just kneeling before Jesus because he's done everything. The legal demands are too high. The obligations are too great for us to pay. The sin debt is too much. You don't have enough time. The clock is ticking. But Jesus has fully and finally met every demand that God ever had for you. Every standard by which you are to live by. Jesus lived the life you should have and he died the death you deserved. And if you will repent and trust in Him, and stop living life your way, and stop doing things your way, and trying to measure up to God's love and His standard, and find your standard in Jesus, then you too can live forever. Brother, sister, there's tremendous assurance in these verses. Every one of them. I want you to think for a minute what he says here. Look again. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The picture here is that of completeness, finished. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. This means that every single sin is gone. Past, present, and future, every one of them, with its legal requirements, they're erased. They're set aside. The debt has been completely forgiven. Now, how foolish would it be for us to think that if the debt's been paid, that we somehow need to pay more? How silly would it be if we pay off our house for us to keep giving money to the mortgage company? 
Our neighbors would laugh at us. This man's gone crazy. He keeps giving money to the bank and he doesn't need to. And your your debt has been paid. You you don't need to give any more. All you have is in Christ. This is what Paul means. But notice here, fourthly, he condemned the enemy. This ought to give us reason. He goes on to say that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. Literally here in this passage, he means to strip off, to remove. He disarmed them. He turned the alarm off. He shut it down. He proved to himself to be more powerful. Now here in this passage, he's referring here to the rulers and authorities. He stripped them of their power. But notice here what he says, not only did he strip them of their power, he disgraced them publicly. There's tremendous irony in this passage. Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. What was supposed to be a public spectacle of the eternal Son of God, in fact, turned out to be a complete spectacle of the enemy. What was meant to shame Jesus actually turned out to be God's triumph over demonic powers. And that God, through Christ, has authority over all things, including rulers and authorities in this world. Friend, here it is. We sing it. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the sinner free. You see, the enemy wants to whisper in your ear and tell you something. God could never forgive that sin. The point that Paul forwards here is that he has condemned the enemy. He is condemned. His death date is already written. He is disarmed. That's not how we live. We live as if Satan's in control, as if he has power and authority over us. But as, he, as we pray and as we sing, that, that he breaks the power of canceled sin. It's canceled. It's, it's nailed to the cross. And he sets the sinner free. The enemy wants you to believe that you're still enslaved to that sin. That you have no power over that sin. That you can't kill that sin. That that sin has power over you. And that he's got some dirt on you that's going to somehow embarrass you. Friend, the enemy has been ashamed, not you. Because Jesus was nailed to the cross. This is why we can have confidence that the cross has freed us from sin. There is faith in future grace here, friend. You are free from your shame. And finally, number five, he confirmed our victory. Paul concludes with this word of triumph. That he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And at him there is a reference to Jesus. Through the cross of Christ, God triumphed over his enemies so that God's people need not fear them any longer. Christ is the supreme authority. He is the one who rules and reigns over all. One author put it this way, the message proclaimed by Paul to the Colossians reminds the one message, reminds us, or remains rather, the one message of hope to men and women in frustration and despair. 
that Christ crucified and risen is Lord over all, that all the forces of the universe are subjected to him, that only the benign ones, but he's hostile ones as well. Friend, no scheme of the devil, not even the will of man, not even you and I can mess this up. This is what it means that he triumphed, that he has victory over it, and that all we need is Jesus. The idea painted here by the Apostle Paul is that we need to stick close to Jesus, and there we will have a sanctified life. We have no hope of putting to death the sin that remains in us if we do not see the sufficiency of the cross. We must trust the means of God's grace that he's given to us in Christ. We must guard against theological error concerning sanctification. We we must not be given in to other means of grace, but stick close to the cross and there find the sufficient means to not only save us of our sins, but to sanctify us. Brothers and sisters, we will face temptation to give ourselves to other means to battle sin. Mutilation, asceticism, worship of angels, the things that we're being tempted here in in these verses. But by being vigilant to the dangers of head, by guarding our hearts from doubting the sufficiency of Christ, and by learning to trust that Jesus Christ accomplished all these things for you and for me, We can sing, along with Horatio Spatford, when he wrote, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray.